0: you can't really do an effective parody of conspiracism because it gets immediately co-opted into the paranoid style and the conspiracist uh, uh, frame of mind. Uh, There's nothing that cannot be believed. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Matthew Galt, and Jason Fields.
1: Hello and welcome to War College. I am Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. We're back with another episode of the War College Annex. These are those bonus episodes that go off the beaten path. And again, we're talking about QAnon, the popular internet-driven conspiracy theory that supposes... President Trump is at war with an ancient and powerful pedophile cult. When QAnon believers began showing up at Trump rallies, the media took notice, and in an early August, BuzzFeed published a report supposing that Q was an elaborate left wing prank on believers. The evidence? A book published in Italy in the 1990s titled Q. With us today is ming One, one of the authors of that book. He's here to help us disentangle QAnon from the novel, talk about the importance of conspiracy theories to culture, and what makes a good cultural prank, and how you can use pranks to debunk conspiracy theories. Wu Ming-Wan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So my first question is, are you responsible for QAnon? Of course not. All right, well, let's... Can you explain the plot of the book and why people might think that you are?
0: Okay. Uh, the novel Q was published for the first time in the uh, springtime of 1999 in Italy, the Italian edition. Then, then it was translated into 18 languages and published in 30 countries, including the U.S. Of course, uh, on that side of the Atlantic, uh, the book is uh, was far less successful Then in Europe, it became kind of a cult novel in some niches, but uh, it was never as famous as it was in Italy and uh, several other European countries. It was published in 2004 in the U.S. The novel Q was uh, the final contribution that I and uh, three other co-authors gave uh, to the so-called Luther Bliss Project. Uh, which uh, was a project of cultural agitation and communication guerrilla uh, that lasted from 1994 to 1999. I think we can talk about that later on. Uh, now I'll focus on the novel. Um, the novel uh, uh, is set in the 16th century on the backdrop of the radical uprisings that followed Martin Luther's uh, Reformation. And especially uh, the first part is focused on the peasant's war, which was which huge peasant insurrection in Germany, led by a guy uh, named Thomas Münzer, uh, which means uh, Thomas the Coiner, And uh, then uh, the plot moves to other attempts at, you know, at revolution uh, in the course of, the, of that century. It was, uh, it was a very turbulent uh, century uh, back then with a lot of religious wars and a lot of heresies springing out like mushrooms. Okay, and we follow the main character. The main character has no name. Uh, He he changes name every time he changes town, chapter by chapter. He he, um, adopts uh, several names and new identities. We never really get to know his real name. He's a radical and a Baptist revolutionary, uh, a, former, um, a former student of theology at Wittenberg, which is the same town in which uh, uh, Martin Luther, uh, Luther wrote his uh, famous thesis and he nailed them on the, the door you know, of, uh, of um, the cathedral, of Wittenberg Cathedral. Well, this guy, uh, this guy is um, followed at a distance by another guy who's the villain in our novel. Uh, this guy is an agent provocateur. He's a spy, a secret agent. Uh, he works for the Pope, uh, for the Vatican, and uh, he sends uh, uh, letters to Thomas Munther and other radical leaders, spreading, uh, deliberately spreading false information, you know, fake news, in order to um, uh, to make uh, the the peasant army fall into a trap so he keeps sending this letter posing as a fellow Radical. Uh, he uh, says that uh, he writes from uh, kind of, you know, top levels of power in a way. He uh, claims to be an infiltrator, but of course he's doing, uh, he's double crossing them, he's doing uh, a double game. And uh, he keeps sending these letters, which are signed Kohelet, which in Hebrew means a uh, preacher. Of course, it's uh, a book of the Bible, you know, uh, Kohelet. At the same time, he keeps sending reports of his own activities to his boss. His boss is Giovanni Pietro Carafa, cardinal, uh, later to become a pope uh, himself, uh, Paul IV. Okay, uh, the guy who renewed Inquisition uh, in uh, in in the 1540s. Um, well, uh, these dispatches are signed Q simply as Q, and he reports about uh, his misleading activities. He's uh, spreading, you know, urban legends and uh, false pieces of information and stuff like that. He is the main cause in our novel, not in actual history, but in our novel, he is the main cause of the peasant army's defeat uh, in Frankenhausen. Uh, In 1525, uh, the whole uh, revolutionary army, led by Thomas Munzer, moved to marched to towards uh, this uh, city in uh, thuringia called frankenhausen uh, in which uh, they had a field battle they they thought it it would be the final definitive battle for victory uh, and they were confronted by a huge a huge uh, reactionary army uh, uh, hired by the princes and and the bishops they were It was a crushing defeat. They were uh, not only defeated, but practically exterminated. So uh, it was the end for that uh, early example of modern class revolution. Uh, Then our character moves uh, to this other town called Munster, in which revolutionary takeover and kind of uh, start a a commune like the the Paris Commune in 1871. But uh, this guy, Q uh, is a... infiltrates uh, this struggle too and he keeps spreading false information until they defeat it it's
2: it's, it's uh, uh, like that all the time until until the end the end of the novel so people in this country find this book relevant because uh, well is it because they think that it's an allegory or do they think that it's a conspiracy that started then and is still going on today
0: uh, the book was an allegory of our own activities, the activities of uh, the, uh, the Luther Brissett Project in the second half of the 90s in Italy and other countries of continental Europe and also a little bit in the UK. Um, we uh, conceived it, we constructed it as an allegory. It's about uh, uh, you know, psychological warfare, it's about techniques of communication guerrilla, it's about pulling pranks. on a level uh, there there are other levels of interpretation of course but that uh, was uh, the one that caused uh, a sensation in, uh, in those days when it was published in Italy that it became kind of a uh, night Table Book, uh, Livre de Chevet, as they say in French, for a new generation of activists. The, the generation uh, the, we, that after the so-called Battle of Seattle at the end of 1999 started to you know, confront uh, neoliberal globalization and they started to uh, protest uh, at uh, big summits, big meetings for of, the WTO, the World Bank, uh, uh, the G8, uh, uh, like in Genoa in uh, 2001. That generation of activists took a cue as a, um, a whole set of references. Uh, people used to call themselves with the names of the characters of the novel and stuff like that. So it, it was a, it was a bestseller. It's a long longseller. Uh, this side of the Atlantic, not the other side of the Atlantic, in which is uh,
1: less known. All right. Well, let's let's zoom out a little bit and let's start because I want to dig into the project that kind of gave rise to the book. Um, and this idea of, I guess, conspiracy theories or cultural pranks for good that are kind of righteous. Uh, But first, can you explain to us what the paranoid style is? I think that's a really important concept to grasp here.
0: Okay. The the paranoid style is what defines a conspiracy theory. It's a a, a rhetoric. uh, it's It's a frame of mind. Uh, it was uh, uh, defined for the first time by a political scientist, uh, an American political scientist, uh, Richard Hofstadter, back in 1964. He wrote a seminal essay, a very important essay called "The Paranoid Style in American Politics," in which he dealt uh, mainly with the kind of conspiracies that the John Birch Society used to talk about at that time. Okay, but he traced the origins of the paranoid style, at least in the U.S., back. Uh, in uh, uh, the 1830s and for example he demonstrated that uh, such uh, important figures like Samuel uh, B. Morse the inventor of the telegraph and the Morse code uh, indulge very much in anti Semitic conspiracy theories and, and stuff like that. Okay, so the paranoid style is a useful conspe- concept because it uh, can help us uh, make uh, uh, the correct distinction between actual conspiracies, okay, and conspiracism. Okay, um, because we shouldn't make the mistake of saying that conspiracies don't exist, because of course some conspiracies do exist. Uh, what is a conspiracy? You have a conspiracy when a group of people or more than one people agree in secret to take some action against someone else, a third party, against someone else's interests at, at least. Okay. So th- there are some requirements, some characteristics. There might be more than one person, otherwise it's not a conspiracy, of course. Uh, the agreement between those persons must be secret, because if you do things in broad daylight, that's not a conspiracy. Everyone can see what you're doing. And the most important characteristic, at least according to me, action must be against someone. The example that I usually make is if you organize a surprise party for your dad's birthday, that's not a conspiracy because you are agreeing in secret with other people, but not against someone else, because you're not conspiring against your dad by organizing a surprise party. It must be a very awful party in order to to have that characteristic. Okay, so you can uh, uh, say that conspiracies do exist, but real, actual conspiracies have some key characteristics That make them very different from the kind of convoluted, cumbersome conspiracy theories which conspiracists dream about and share and spread. Okay.
1: Well, give us an example of a real-life conspiracy, like one that was actually true.
0: Watergate. Watergate. Uh, I I, I held a lecture here. I'm in Montreal right now. I held a lecture. uh, Yesterday about uh, these issues and they made the example of Watergate. Okay. Uh, Watergate was an actual conspiracy. There were some aides and collaborators and lackeys of Richard Nixon who effectively uh, agreed in secret in order to take some action against the people who they, whom they perceived as Nixon's enemies. Of course, that's why those burglars were wiretapping the Watergate Hotel that that night, okay, and they were caught in the act. The fact that they were caught in the act is very interesting, okay, because that gives us the opportunity to focus on the, uh, I I don't know if the English term is correct, the imperfectness of actual conspiracies. They are not perfect. Uh, Okay, so usually real conspiracies have a very specific aim, okay, a precise focus. In that case, the focus was on Nixon's enemies, and uh, the, there was a, a set of uh, limited practices, which those people used to call rat-facking. Okay? Uh, it was a way of sabotage the activities of uh, you know, democratic leaders and, and uh, people whom they perceived as Nixon's enemies. Real conspiracy, second characteristic. Real conspiracies usually involve a limited number of actors. In that case, there were uh, five or six uh, uh, important uh, people belonging to Richard Dixon's team. And then there were, yeah, some some other legies and agents. But the number of people taking part in the Watergate conspiracy always remained very limited. Okay. The, The people who went on trial later on. Okay. The other one is... Actual conspiracies uh, usually have a somewhat shaky development. Uh, They're not uh, as coherent as the imaginary conspiracies. Uh, And the fact that those burglars were caught in flagrante... Okay, is a demonstration that uh, things we were uh, the, the peop- these people acted in a very clumsy way. Actually, okay, uh, so you have a shaky development and a narrative of the conspiracy that's not that, uh, uh, paranoically coherent. Okay, and it's usually very easy to sum up the the, uh, con- the narrative of an actual conspiracy. Usually, usually very easily easy to uh, summarize. Okay, uh, I just did that. In in the case of Watergate. Uh, The other thing is that actual conspiracy usually do not last long before they are discovered and exposed. In that case, it lasted a few years. Okay. And it was discovered. People found out about it. uh, And uh, there was an an investigation, a journalistic inquiry, you know, Woodward and Bernstein. uh, And uh, the conspiracy was exposed a few years after it had started. And the most important one, the fifth one, at least uh, to my advice, is that once a real conspiracy is exposed, it's over. The end, over. Its effects may persist, but operations stop. They cease. Okay. On the contrary, the kind of conspiracy that's imagined and built up uh, and uh, talked about by conspiracy theorists, it's exactly the opposite. Usually, an alleged conspiracy has the widest possible scope, not a specific purpose, but the the widest one, uh, because usually this kind of conspiracy allegedly aims at ruling, or conquering, or destroying the planet, you know, the whole world. Okay. The second characteristic is that um, this kind of conspiracy, of alleged conspiracy, involves a huge and potentially unlimited number of actors. Uh, And this number seems to increase and increase and increase at every account because anyone who denies the existence of the conspiracy is immediately denounced as part of it. So uh, the number keeps increasing, 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 and at the end there are multitudes, you know, of people allegedly being part of the conspiracy. We saw this with PizzaGate, we saw this with QAnon, as well. Okay, Um, and this is contrary to Occam's Razor. You know, Occam's Razor said non sunt multiplicanda entia sine necessitate, which means keep things. Easy. It keeps, uh, keep things easy to explain. Don't multiply factors. You know, don't add uh, useless uh, complexity to your description of reality. Okay. Uh, the other one is that the, the alleged conspiracy usually is carried out in an extremely coherent, ultra-consistent way because in the in the in the narrative of, of that kind of conspiracy. Things always go exactly as, as planned. Everything confirms the narrative. Every detail fits perfectly in, okay? Every piece of, of the jigsaw puzzle fits uh, uh, perfectly. So ultra coherent. The, uh, the fourth one is that this kind of conspiracy is eternal. Uh, it, uh, it goes on indefinitely. Some of these conspiracies are described as being going on for decades, and other ones uh, even for centuries or millennia. Okay, and fifth one, (laughs) this kind of conspiracy allegedly keeps going on, on, on. It goes on uh, despite the, uh, in spite of the existence of (laughs) hundreds of books and articles, and websites, and videos, and postcards, allegedly exposing it. Even if it's exposed, it keeps going on. Okay, so it's exactly the opposite of an actual conspiracy like Watergate. Each one of these five characteristics is exactly the opposite of the the, the previous set of
1: characteristics. And you've, you've designed some conspiracies yourself, correct? Or you've been a part of it? We practically debunked
0: some conspiracies. Uh, We devised pranks as a practical critique and a direct intervention against conspiracism. That's what we did with the Luther Blissett project with some of our extremely elaborate media pranks. You know, because we pulled some very complex pranks, kind of LARPs, because they were so complex that they required the assistance and the collaboration and the imagination of dozens of people uh, all across the country, all across Italy, um, we uh, pulled uh, those kind of pranks, for example, in the middle to late 90s in order to show how dangerous the the great uh, pedophilia uh, slash uh, satanic ritual abuse scare was, okay, because there was mass paranoia about uh, satanists and uh, pedophiles back In those days, it was the same wave of moral panic that had invested the U.S. in the 80s, you know, after that book Michelle remembers, there was was this satanic ritual abuse scare, uh, child abuse scare, that kind. Uh, that kind of stuff that same wave invested Europe a few years later. Okay, uh, especially after this serial killer, this guy Marc Dutroux, the monster of Marcinelle uh, in Belgium, was uh, arrested, uh, and it was discovered that, that he had uh, uh, tortured and killed a lot of kids, etc. After that, there was a huge wave of moral panic, and uh, m- several innocent people were uh, victims of that climate. You know. Of the atmosphere, uh, extremely paranoid atmosphere, and uh, they were arrested with uh, horrible charges, uh, uh, sent to prison in uh, solitary confinement uh, on, uh, on a basis that was the basis of conspiracism, okay, because there was this vision of secret Dungeons, uh, secret tunnels uh, where ritual child abuse uh, was taking place with the cooperation of several uh, uh, people, secret operators, e- even politicians and stuff, stuff like that. Okay, So we devised some pranks as uh, part of uh, our counter investigations and sometimes uh, solidarity campaigns to show that uh, some defendants in important trials uh, that were accused of satanic ritual abuse were actually innocent. And in fact, they were all acquitted. They were all acquitted and the money even gave them, and the state even gave them money uh, as a compensation for their unjust uh, unjust uh, imprisonment. Okay, so we devised some pranks uh, uh, that were um, that aimed at showing That it was all bullshit. Okay. For example, uh, one of the, the most complex one was played by really dozens of people in near Rome, in a town near Rome called. Viterbo uh, in the backwoods around the town uh, that prank lasted a year uh, we simulated the existence, of, the existence of a satanic sect of um, uh, black masses taking place uh, in the in the woods uh, and even we faked the existence of a group of Christian anti-satanist vigilantes looking for satanists in order to beat them up, to disrupt their rituals uh, uh, and stuff like that. It was all made up, okay? There were neither satanists nor vigilantes, no black mass, no uh, ritual abuse, nothing like that. There were only fake pictures, uh, uh, uncanny objects, which we left uh, in the woods, and especially some particularly crazy communique, you know, press releases, which we sent to the local and national media, the, and they were signed by this group called the COSAMO Committee for the Safeguard of Morals. It was this group of anti-satanist uh, vigilantes, and the media, the local press at the beginning, and there's also the national media, media, they believed. Everything they published, everything with no fact checking at all, because we were in the middle of a, of, of a uh, you know, of a moral panic wave, and everyone was talking about ritual abuse and pedophilia and satanists. So also politicians, at a certain point, jumped on the bandwagon of mass paranoia uh, and. Uh, the 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 tipping point was when we managed to get footage of a fake uh, satanic ritual broadcasting the national tv news in the prime time tv news on a national level it was a very um, clumsy and blurred video uh, the, you didn't see anything actually it was all you know in the in the shadow uh, with uh, people with hoods on uh, and candles and stuff like that and they uh, and they broadcasted and commented upon it uh, at the end we claimed the responsibility for the whole thing after after a whole year, it lasted a whole year. Uh, uh, we claimed the responsibility and produced a huge mass of evidence proving that we were responsible for that and, and uh, uh, Satanists and vigilantes uh, uh, had actually never existed. We uh, 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 caused quite a sensation, uh, but also the Luther Bridge Project was responsible for a huge a huge counter inquiry on the cases of uh, uh, false, uh, you know, false uh, accusations of uh, on uh, of
2: child uh, child abuse. Let, the... let me ask you a question, though. So, so once you revealed that you were behind the prank, do you think that there were people who continued to believe it anyway? I mean, is that a concern?
0: No, no, not in that case. Not in that case, because we had a reputation. Okay, we already had a reputation. We had been pulling pranks like that, maybe not that complex all the time, for years. Okay, so because our project started in 1994, this prank, this uh, pseudo satanic prank, was in 1998. So for 40 years, we had been pulling pranks. Okay, organizing pranks, and uh, the name Luther Brissett was associated with this kind of activities. Uh, I mean, the the purpose of the whole Luther Brissett project thing was to adopt. the same moniker, the same pseudonym, uh, then the same name. Uh, altogether, hundreds of people, hundreds of artists and activists, cultural agitators adopted the same name and used it in order to you know, sign their you know, works of art or writings or, or performances or claiming responsibility for pranks. So uh, Luther Blissett was famous, kind of a Robin Hood of a digital age, uh, a social bandit, uh, a, a prankster. Every action added to the reputation of this imaginary guy, who was a collective entity, actually. So when we claimed responsibility for that, everyone believed it because we already had a, a track, we had a reputation.
1: This reminds me of Houdini or James Randi, right? Yeah, yeah. Who are both who are both magicians that would that would debunk spiritualism uh, yeah. by showing you how you did the trick. And then explaining the trick to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are some similarities. Yeah, many, yeah, actually many similarities. We were, we were always being very much interested in magic. It was about uh, claiming responsibility by explaining. In detail, what kind of tricks we had used, and what kind of bugs in the information system we had taken advantage of in order to pull the prank. So it, it had an educational aspect, uh, kind of, because uh, uh, can I can say we uh, focused on cultural automatisms, and then said it, and then t- told. Uh, we, we usually told people uh, you acted you acted uh, following a cultural automatism you are in the middle uh, in the middle of a you know a moral panic wave, uh, so you instantly believed that kind of bullshit because everyone's uh, everyone's talking about that kind of bullshit by but by, by cl- claiming claiming that it 's real. we proved uh, that we faked it okay for for one that we fake it how many more are fake and are faked by the media, or are automatically generated by a cultural automatism, you know, because there's no consip- conspiracy behind this kind of, of stuff. Nobody decides that there will be a, a wave of moral panic about a particularly sensitive issue. Nobody decides that there's no conspiracy on that level. Of course, there's culture. Culture has some mechanisms. Um, some, uh, it, uh, it undergoes many phases, you know, uh, things Things happen, okay. So we always explained uh, the kind of, you know, flows in the media system we had exploited in order to pull the prank, and it was kind of an educational DIY aspect. Okay, you can do that too if you organize. You can do that too, okay. You don't have to uh, be a passive consumer of me of the media. Okay, you can you can counteract. Uh, Okay, in cases like this. Uh, so uh, our pranks uh, had the three important aspects: you know, n- 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 the content that we n- that we choose to to put in there into them, because these pranks were always pulled in order to raise uh, awareness on some sensitive issues, and especially on, on how the media talked about those sensitive issues. Okay, so uh, the. Uh, the content was never produced at random, you know, we, we, it was very deliberate, okay? We we had meetings and we decided what, what to do. And then this, there was this do-it-yourself aspect and this kind of reverse engineering aspect, explaining what we had done. And the account of how we did the prank was always more important than the prank itself, okay? And then there was this uh, aspect of, uh, I, I, which I would call communitarian because each prank added to Luther Blissett's reputation and made uh, calling yourself Luther Blissett ever more appealing. So you have to build a myth first. Yeah, exactly. You were part of that myth. You were not a passive uh, contemplator, a passive consumer of that myth. You were part of it in an active way, in an engaging way, and you felt uh, being part of a warm community of people sharing the same purpose. Okay? You shared a certain style, a certain uh, imagery, uh, even if you never met the other members in person. Okay? Because there the, 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 the were cases in which some, some people gave important contributions without ever meeting in person, for example, we had regular meetings in which we met in Bologna, we were 50, 50, about 50 people, also in Rome, there was a huge group, okay, but there were other individual contributors to the Lutheran Bridge Project that were, you know, scattered apart in the whole country or even in other countries, sometimes uh, communicating with each other via uh, the mail art uh, network, no, because uh, the Luther Blissett project came out of the of, yeah, there were some underground currents in, in, in culture, you know, uh, in, in the 80s uh, and of piece, small pieces of art and zines sent uh, via uh, the snail mail, via the surface mail. And it was a huge nat- network predating the internet uh, and some people communicated with each other about Luther Blissett via the mail art network. Okay, So there were three, three aspects. Uh, the content, the DIY aspect, and community. That was the most important thing. But it's, it's uh, uh, reve- revealing. It's very interesting that, that you talked about Randy uh, and Houdini because uh, we mm, strictly collaborate with magicians. You know, uh, there's this guy who's part of the Wuming Foundation called Mariano Tomatis, who is a magician, a historian of illusions. He focuses his work... On exploring ways of uh, revealing the trick behind the magic act in a way in a way which doesn't spoil the magic act, but but makes it even more magic. There are some examples of that. Yes, yesterday, I, I showed a video with Penn and Teller. You know, I think Penn and Teller are the best illusionists in the world. Uh, uh, there there are some magic acts in which they show the exact tricks that they just used. First, they perform the act and people are in awe. Uh, they, they, they they look at them and say, wow. And then they repeat the act, uh, for example, with transparent props. So you can see all, all the secret moves that they're doing. Uh, you understand that you've been misdirected the first time. And you see that there's a lot of work behind a magic act. Seeing that, you're even more in awe than before. And you go, wow, wow, because there is a way of revealing a trick that makes magic even more magic. And that's what we did with our pranks.
2: Well, so let me ask, uh, do you think that that kind of prank is what's happening in the United States? Is that behind any of these really outlandish conspiracy theories? Or do you think that the conspiracy theories we have now are just organic?
0: Yeah, I think they're just organic. uh, uh, There's something in in American, in Western culture, not only in American culture, which keeps uh, creating creating conspiracy theories. There are some key elements that keep resurfacing, for example, this thing of child abuse and secret dungeons. Uh, uh, it's, it faded out uh, at the end of the 80s or in the early 90s in the US and they and, and then uh, resurfaced with Pizzagate uh, in uh, 2016. Then uh, Pizzagate seemed to paid out, but uh, it became pedogate uh, for a while and then uh, took the definitive shape of Q and on. But there's always the thing of secret rings of pedophiles of dungeons. I mean, uh, Comet Ping-Pong in Washington, D.C. didn't even have a a dungeon, Uh, didn't even have a basement, but people kept saying that there was a basement in which uh, ritual child abuse took place with the complicity of top democratic officials and leaders and, and stuff like that. Okay. So there are some archetypes that, keeps, that keep
1: resurfacing. Do you think your kind of myth-busting techniques would be effective now, or is the world too different? Is the media cycle too different?
0: Uh, uh, mutatis mutandis, as I say in Latin, we change in the necessary things to change. Well, I think uh, we're still exploring that kind of stuff. Even we, we don't pull prank anymore, but we keep exploring uh, that way of, uh, you know, we called it Showing the stitches you know like the stitchings on the body of uh, the Frankenstein monster Okay, you see the stitches so you understand that he's composed of multiple parts of multiple cadavers okay we show even in our fiction in our way of uh, telling stories of writing novels or, or, or even writing non-fiction we always we say we keep uh, the uh, the factory open we show our tools uh, we always explain the kind of techniques that we use uh, because uh, we're still looking for uh, that particular way of revealing tricks that doesn't spoil magic. Okay, so that's that's what we, we, we keep thinking. Um, when uh, uh, we uh, tweeted about Q and for the first time, okay, a lot of people were interested, in, including you, Matthew. Uh, and we received uh, several requests uh, of interviews from uh, several countries, not only the US, also Germany, France, and Italy. Okay. What uh, we did in that particular case was, okay, seeding doubt about the origins of QAnon, always saying we're not sure it started as a prank. Just, if it started as a prank, was a miscalculated one. Uh, if it started as a parody... They didn't take into account what Umberto Eco showed in his masterpiece, Foucault's Pendulum, that you can't really do an effective parody of conspiracism because it gets immediately co-opted into the paranoid style and the conspiracist uh, frame of mind. There's nothing that cannot be believed. There's nothing that's too much Okay, so you do a parody, you do a satire, and you will find people who actually believe it. Okay, so if it started as parody, uh, it was doomed to be completely ineffective. If it started as a prank, you know, uh, uh, people uh, either from the left or even from the most, uh, you know, uh, irreverent uh, currents of the alt right, you know, started as a prank in order to troll. Gullible rightists who would believe that kind of bullshit, uh, it, it, it immediately got out of hand and took a life of its own. So we, you know, we started to see the doubt, but in, in a rational way. But what we also did was revive the spirit of our old pranks. I mean, because we, uh, we, um, we think that popping the conspiracy balloon is absolutely ineffective. Uh, a, a debunking that's, all, uh, all, that's only rational, you know, with rational arguments, uh, falls flat. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's what we, in Italian, we call it debunking ratio suprematista, racial supremacist. Uh, which, is because it establishes a supremacy of reason, you know, with a sound argument and with uh, facts, uh, unassailable facts, you can debunk a conspiracy. It doesn't work like that because conspiracy theories operate on the level of myths, okay, which is completely unassailable by by reason alone. You have to do something else. So what we did in that case was to uh, inoculate into the debate on QAnon the word. Prank. After that, as as you as you as you noticed, uh, the frame in which QAnon was discussed was slightly rearranged, and there was some sense of bafflement that spread in some uh, uh, rightist milieu. Okay, because the word prank was enough to you know to raise suspicion. But we um, we also did. We weren't sure about that. But uh, the the most important thing is that we made the examples of our work, our nineties work. Uh, so we tried to inoculate some sense of wonder, something that was fun, because the problem is that debunking is not fun, while conspiracism is. People who are into conspiracies enjoy that dimension very much, okay? Because uh, conspiracism and the paranoid style, in a way, in a very warped way, uh, encounter some um, basic needs that we as humans have okay um conspiracists uh, play in the same league as psychics uh the, the astrologers uh, you know sorcerers uh, magicians uh
1: healers it puts a little bit of magic and excitement back into the world for people
0: exactly that's precisely that it's precisely that okay because we do need a sense of wonder in our lives, we do need difference, uh, different angles from which looking at things, uh, we need that, okay? And they provide it, while rational debunking doesn't provide it. If you could do the debunking debunking of conspiracies while retaining the same sense of wonder which conspiracists exploit, that would be great. It's the right thing to do. That's why we we focus the attention on, on those illusionists who explain the tricks because they are kind of debunking themselves but retaining the sense of wonder. And the other thing that's important is that every conspiracy theory, even the craziest one, has a kernel of truth. And if you don't talk about that kernel of truth, you reinforce, you reinforce the belief in consp- in the conspiracy theory. We made a lot of, of, of examples in the past few weeks and also in my lecture yesterday at McGill University. For example, I did the example of chemtrails, you know, chemtrails are a distorted version of uh, a legitimate, uh, you know, preoccupation for climate change, okay? Uh, the system cannot deny itself, okay? It, al- uh, it always bends every feeling and emotion, tries to bend every feeling and emotion and anxiety and preoccupation towards a, di- we call it, diversionary narrative, a narrative that's more or less about the same issue, but doesn't address its core, okay? So, the chemtrails conspiracy theory was born because of that. Because you you have people, okay, that see the signs of climate change every day, but they are surrounded by people who deny it or uh, acknowledge it, but don't do anything relevant to stop it, okay? So, there's kind of cognitive dissonance because people think, but if the situation is so bad, why uh, the people in power don't do anything about it? How can the situation be so bad if everyone goes uh, on with their with the habits, uh, with the same things every day, like uh, as though life could go on forever like this? Uh, but uh, there are images of doom on the TV. There are hurricanes. Uh, gigantic fires devastating devastating, uh, you know, the Southern California woods. Uh, you have uh, floods, you have droughts, uh, but uh, you, you have at uh, 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 the White House, there's a guy, there's a climate change negation, He denies even the existence of, of the phenomenon. And uh, even the politicians who acknowledge. The phenomenon, don't do anything about it, okay? Because of, of the Paris Protocols is a farce. Of course, nobody's doing nothing, okay? So these, uh, you, uh, people have to cope with this cognitive dissonance uh, and uh, uh, a, a diversionary narrative is produced, is automatically generated. And even the symptom is correct because the increase in air traffic with low cost flights, etc. it's true that you see more
2: chemtrails Contrails. Contrails. The real thing is a contrail. (laughs) Condensation trail is what it's short for. I just want to, sorry, I just want to stick that in there. But they
1: do call them chemtrails, the conspiracists do.
2: The conspiracists do. I just wanted to get the real thing there.
0: It's a chemical process anyway.
2: It's not the chemical
0: process they they think it is. Okay, But it's true that the uh, increase in air traffic is also increasing air pollution. And stuff like that. So the symptom is more or less correct, but uh, the problem is the diversionary narrative that uh, uh, takes people away from the kernel of truth of their conspiracy and prevents them from correctly addressing the issue. Okay, and the real issue behind all this is climate change. Okay, so every conspiracy has a kernel of truth. Even 9/11 truthers uh, have a conspiracy that has. A kernel of truth that, but it is
1: perverted into into a diversionary narrative. Well, let me let me ask you this then: What what is the kernel of truth at the center of QAnon? Uh, the kernel of
0: truth of QAnon is the people are insecure about who's in power. Is that uh, there are all these you know uh, uh, state agencies, uh, intelligence uh, uh, agencies that you don't really. Know what they do. There was uh, some times ago. There was all the NSA controversy uh, about uh, you know the, the government spying on uh, on citizens uh, all the time. Uh, okay, so there were the, the, all the WikiLeaks uh, controversy. There was Snowden fleeing from the country and taking refuge in in Russia. Uh, so uh, people heard about that in a confused way. So you don't really know what those guys are doing at the Pentagon, at the NSA, at the CIA, and and stuff like that. Of course, they're not having child sex, okay? It's not about pedophilia, uh, nothing like that. And that's also another important kernel of truth. Uh, I'm not the first one to to, uh, notice it and focus on it. There's uh, another cognitive uh, dissonance uh, here, and this is the the gap uh, between... uh, the utopian kind of utopian expectations which uh, uh, Donald Trump fans had about his presidency and the grim reality, uh, a boring also for, for them, reality of uh, his uh, presidency because he isn't doing anything for the white working class or stuff like that. So you have to cope with, the, with this uh, and uh, you know, kind of fill the gap between uh, what they thought he would do and what he's doing. And so the result is, you think he isn't doing anything okay uh, from their point of view, of course. You think he isn't doing that, but in secret, He's fighting against an evil cabal of pedophiles uh, running the world, uh, and he's a genius, and he's playing a multidimensional chess game, all in secret, because you don't see anything about that, of course. (laughs) uh, So there's a cognitive dissonance. Uh, There's a a kind of fantasy that was uh, created in order to overcome disillusionment, and disappointment about the trump presidency because also them are, are, are disappointed by this presidency because it's no right-wing utopia as they thought
1: Wooming one thank you so much for coming on the show and talking us through all of that uh, thank you very much for having me it was it was fun <laughs> that's this week's episode dear listeners thank you so much for joining us recording this outro during a thunderstorm which feels appropriately spooky given the subject matter We ran into some technical difficulties in the past two weeks here at War College, and I wanted to apologize for that. We'd originally planned to run two episodes this week, but we only had time to run one. It was the bonus that we'd recorded first. Everything is straightened out now, though, and in the coming weeks, we'll be talking about what makes a good comic book war memoir, delve into a little ancient Greek history. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Jason, Jason Fields. You can find War College online at warcollegepodcast.com, facebook.com forward slash warcollege, and on Twitter at war underscore college. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps others find the show, and Jason just might read your review on the air. Until next time.